I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Rob Kenny is the creator and host of the YouTube channel, Dad, How Do I? Offering technical, practical, and fatherly advice about all aspects of life. His channel has grown to 4.5 million subscribers since launching in April of 2020, and he has come to be known affectionately as the Internet's dad. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Now, over the last several months, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution, whose recent book of Boys and Men talks about the multi-level crisis affecting this demographic, from higher suicide rates to lower educational achievement, worsening job and dating prospects, and more. Soon after, I spoke with Richie Hardcore, a retired Muay Thai champion in New Zealand who now works with young men and women, predominantly young men who feel aimless and lost. And so my mind has kind of been in this space for a while now, and I thought of your channel and specifically how it got so big so fast. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of the videos you make and why you make them, I'd like to touch on your book. In the dedication, you write, quote, this book is dedicated to my family, to my immediate family, for all you have taught me over the years, my wife, Annalie, my children, Kyle and Christine, and my son-in-law, Ryan, to my brothers and sisters, for filling voids that needed to be filled, to my mom and dad, for the quality traits that you instilled in my siblings. It took me a while to forgive you, but now I can appreciate the good you did for me, the good you did give me, to my internet kids, for your kindness, encouragement, and support, end quote. So my first question, Rob, is what called you to write this book? Yeah, I, you know, I didn't see myself ever writing a book. I'm sure most people have felt like, you know, I should write a book. <laughs> you know, you hear that all the time. And I'm grateful that I was given the opportunity. I, it wasn't planned. It kind of came about because my channel went viral. And then I had several publishers reach out to me and ask me if I wanted to write a book. Again, it's not something I really ever thought would come to fruition, but I'm so grateful that I was able to actually put some thoughts down in words because that's kind of cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all that said, it wasn't planned. I wasn't planning to write a book, but it just kind of came about because of my channel. What was the process like? I mean, as someone who's never written a book, I mean, I've never written one myself. I, I think that can be a daunting task. I mean, a lot of the book is advice, some of which was already covered in your video. So I imagine some of that was easy to kind of transfer over. But a good chunk of the book, really the first third, isn't about the technical advice whatsoever. It's about your personal story your family life, where you came from, how you became the man you are today, and the life lessons you learned and wanted to share along the way. So what was that process like becoming an author for the first time? What was that like for you? Yeah, thankfully, I was surrounded by good people. I had a ghostwriter that was phenomenal, Marcus Brotherton. So he helped me navigate that because I think without that, I wouldn't have known how to put it all together. I have a lot of thoughts in my head. And and I'll just be honest, I don't consider myself uh, a wordsmith. You know, I feel like when I was younger in English, I wasn't necessarily encouraged in, in English. You know, I, I feel like some of my teachers weren't necessarily encouraging with that. And with my home life, I guess if I put out a paper as a kid, I, I wouldn't necessarily proofread it. I just kind of hand it in and really you should write it and then, you know, proofread. But because of the instability at home, I was just trying to get stuff done. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say that I'm grateful for the people that I had around me to make me, uh, how I put it down on paper, look better than what I probably would have came up with. 
You mentioned instability there, and I think that's a good way to transition to talking about your family life growing up, which you touch on in the book in great detail. You come from a large family, four brothers and three sisters. You were the the seventh child in that lineup. But as you approached your teen years, your parents' marriage began to fall apart and eventually disintegrate. Your mom's struggles with anxiety and depression led her to turn to alcohol abuse, and your father basically checked out entirely. For weeks, he would leave you and the rest of the younger kids to fend for yourselves during the weekdays as he'd spend time with the new woman he was seeing an hour away. And then, to quote a passage from your book, quote, when I was 13, my dad came home, called us all together, and announced that he was finished with fatherhood, end quote. He said that if you couldn't find a place to live for yourself, you'd be put into foster care. What was that moment like for you? And how has it shaped the father you are to Christine and Kyle today? It was tough. You know, that was a tough time. And there's a meme going around saying my dad abandoned me. I, I don't like the choice of that. How that works. I don't think he abandoned me. I think, unfortunately, his heart had grown hardened. And I think he just, by that time, wanted to be free of the, the so-called burden of having children. And so he came home and said he was done raising, raising kids. Yeah, when that happened, that was pretty hard. And he told the older siblings, you know, they're either going to have to take us in or he was going to put us in foster care. That was hard. As a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, you know, you're going through puberty, you're trying to figure out what a man is, all, all that. And that was pretty hurtful. And so then, thankfully, my brother stepped up, who was 23 at the time. You know, he was just a kid himself. He stepped up, thankfully, and then I went to live with him. But that was tough. You know, it's tough at that age. And then there's certain things you're going through. Uh, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable sharing certain things with my brother. You know, he's my brother. It's kind of embarrassing going through where your mind's changing. And you're going through puberty. You, you know where I'm going with that. But anyway, it was a pretty difficult time. And I think it affected my own kids in the fact that even as a 14 year old, I, you know, I was just a 14 year old, but I made the promise I'd never do that to my kids. So I kind of made that pledge as a 14 year old. Obviously, life is a lot. You know, I was pretty simplistic as a 14-year-old to think that it would be easy to do that once you get into life and get busy and stuff is hard. But yeah, so I made the pledge. And then also I chose a career that allowed me the flexibility to be able to be involved in my kids' lives. That was never my priority. My wife, I mean, you know, I married well. Our priority wasn't how much money we could make or how big a house we could have or all the toys that we could have. It was more about the priority of spending time with our kids because we understood that the window was, you know, you just got such a short window of time with them. Yeah. I mean, it's clear in the book that you put your children first, that that was a focus that you had. I would imagine that a lot of that is because of what you went through as a child. I mean, I could talk at length about the sacrifices that my own father made for me as a child, some of which I did not even know about until I was in my 20s when he shared them with me. I, I have memories of my dad being miserable at his job when I was a child. He was mistreated by the people who hired him and belittled. And it was painful for me as his son to see my hero treated in such a manner. And I never understood why he didn't work somewhere else. Until I was in my 20s and we were out to dinner, just the two of us, and I asked him that question. I said, Dad, why didn't you get another job? You deserved better. Why didn't you go for it? And he told me that at one point when I was, I don't know, maybe nine or 10, he did get an offer for a job that would have paid him twice as much. But the problem was, is it would have been a few hours away from where we lived. And he said that because of his own childhood, where his dad would constantly either lose his job or just quit jobs and have to 
get another job and move the family. My dad didn't spend more than about a year, maybe two years in any one town throughout his entire childhood. So he never got a chance to make long-term friends and make those connections with other children that I was able to make growing up. And he said that chaos in his life, that instability informed the choices he made as a father to me and that he turned down that job, even though it would have been a better salary and better treatment because he didn't want to do to my sister and I what was done to him as a child. So I imagine that the instability that you felt as a child informed how you became a dad today. I think absolutely. And good on your dad. That's uh, I applaud him for that. A lot of times we don't necessarily take into consideration how it's going to affect other things. You know, sometimes you have some hard decisions and you don't have a choice. But if you do have choices, I think you got to consider everything in that choice and not just, oh, we could have more toys, we could have more money so that we could do more things. Well, how is it going to affect everybody? So good on your dad. That yet There's a lot of wisdom there. And I think we tend to compare ourselves to others. And a lot of people get caught up in that whole rat race of trying to compare yourselves to the Joneses. But I think you just got to stay the course. <laughs> I've, I've talked about, this is not something I did, but in hindsight, I, I try to encourage people, new parents, when you start a business, you write out a mission statement. I would say it wouldn't be a bad idea to write out a mission statement for your kids when they're little. You tend to promise them the world. You know, I remember holding my daughter right when she was born and oh, I'm going to, you know, be such a great dad. I'm going to do all these things or what have you. <laughs> I have talked about goals on my channel too and the importance of writing things down like that so that you can refer back to it. And just like a business plan, you can adjust as you go along, but maybe try to nail down five core principles to make sure that you stay on track and keep those promises that you made when your kid was born. It's so easy to get distracted and forget what you're doing here. <laughs> you know, you're raising, a, you're trying to raise the next generation of adults. We're not raising, and I talked about that too, we're not raising good kids. We're raising good adults. That's what you want to do. You know, my kids, our kids, my wife and I feel like we've done well. They're, they're off the payroll. We don't, you know, there was, it was bittersweet when they moved out and they're both on the East coast. We're on the West coast. And that was hard, but in fairness to them, they get to go live their own lives. Now we're not footing the bill for anything. They get to kind of do their own stuff. And, you know, I think that's the goal, not to have them living in my basement. It's to have them be independent and be able to support themselves. Yeah, that has to be a really rewarding feeling, knowing that your children are out in the world and thriving in their own ways because of the role you played as their dad. And of course, the role your wife played as their mom. Something you said there about mission statement really stood out to me because I just recently spoke with the CEO of Stoke Space. It's actually based out in Washington, probably not too far from you. And their mission is to create reusable rockets that are able to be reused 24 hours after they launch, right? So fully reusable, both stages of the rocket, basically SpaceX on steroids. After they land, they want to be able to send them back out 24 hours later. And I asked him, you know, how do you go about achieving that? And his answer was in its own way, similar to what you just said, which is that we have to funnel every single decision that we make, every single engineering decision we make through the funnel of Will this get us closer to or further away from being able to turn this rocket around 24 hours after launch? If it gets us further away from it, we can't make that choice. If it gets us closer, we make that choice. And I think similarly, you know, if your mission statement is put my children first, then every decision you make about work, about vacation, about your extracurricular activities, et cetera, 
is going to go through that funnel of, am I putting my children first by making this choice? And if I'm not, maybe I should second guess it. Yeah, I think that's well said. I'm a man of faith, Michael. And so similar to that is everything filters through that, (laughs) through the fact that I recognize that this life is temporary and that's just how I see life. It's funny in my book, I've had a few comments, you know, where, oh, it's highly religious. And I don't consider myself religious. It's funny because highly religious, be warned, you know, it's like, well, this is my story. If it offends you, I I apologize. (laughs) Or I I don't know if I apologize necessarily. But if you want to hear somebody else's story, then maybe read a different book. Anyway, it kind of caught me off guard because, again, it's such a big part of my life. And I share that in the story of how I came to faith. What do I do? You know, do I write somebody else's story? Because it might offend some people. I, I, I got to tell my story. I have problems with that approach, the, the approach of your critics of saying it's a highly religious book. I mean, I grew up Christian. I come from a Christian background, Presbyterian specifically. My father, my father might actually have kind of a similar story to you in this regard. He grew up Catholic. He went to a, a private Catholic school. He wanted to be a priest for some time. Then he ended up falling away from his faith in his 20s and then after marrying my mom, who, who grew up Protestant, refound his faith through and with her and is now quite religious again. My mom and dad are practicing Christians, my sister as well. I went through a period in my early 20s where I, I lost my faith and I went through an angry atheist phase is how I say it. I railed against the faith that I once had. And now I'm kind of just comfortably agnostic, but with the distance from my angry atheist youthful days in my 20s, I have a much greater appreciation for people who do have faith because I understand that it provides a lot of guidance, comfort, meaning, purpose, community. So I'm well past those angry days of my youth and understand the role that faith plays in people's lives. And there are many times in which I miss that feeling that I had when I was a kid. So for me, that critique of this is a highly religious book, it's like, If you want to learn about the man that you've been watching on YouTube, or if you want to understand who he is, and yet you're asking him to chop off a limb while he shows you himself, I don't really feel like that's fair. As someone who's read your book, I don't feel like you proselytize, but you do share with the reader what informs how you behave. And I think that that's totally appropriate in the same way that if some historical figure, if you read a biography of their lives but then a huge portion of how they became the person they are today was just removed. You wouldn't have a full picture of how they became who they are. That's a bit of a tangent, Rob, but I just wanted to say, as someone who's not religious myself, I think that critique is misplaced because I think all you're doing is sharing with people why you are the way you are and what that's done for you. Yeah, well, thank you. That, that's what I, I was trying to kind of thread that needle where it's like, I know I'm not out here to offend anybody. Everybody's got to make their own decisions for themselves. But this is kind of how I came about it. So I think you articulated it very well, Michael, because I, I have people and there's one gal that's local that's a big fan and she grew up in a Christian home and she completely rejected Christianity, but she loves what I'm doing and she's very supportive. And yeah, so she can understand that is my story and she's still really supports me, you know? So it's kind of funny. You can get offended by it. I have people, I'll say, uh, God bless you at the end of my videos on a lot of them. And people, oh, you lost me when you said that. I'm like, really? That offends you that much that I'm sure you've been called worse. I'm sure people have said worse things to you. And, you know, I think sometimes we can get so sensitive to things like this whole thing about Merry Christmas and all that. It's like, you know, somebody said, happy Hanukkah to me or happy Ramadan or whatever. 
I would not go, how dare you say that to me? I am not. I, I just don't understand it. I think we're too easily offended with things. And I think it stifles dialogue where you're no longer able to just have a conversation. Yes. Well, and it disallows us from being our full selves. I can offer you an apple, Rob, but you have to take it in the same way that offense is something you have to take. Granted, people can say offensive things. They might find a statement that you make, which I don't find offensive at all. But offense is something that we have to take. It's just a frame of mind. Again, similar to you, I I have many Jewish friends here in Los Angeles. I work in the film industry and they're some of my closest friends. And when they talk about their religious experience, even though it's completely different from my own, I find no offense to take because they're just sharing their own lives with me. And actually, I find getting to know people of different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, religions, etc., to be one of the most enriching parts of being alive. Because even if I don't take on what they're doing with their own lives, I don't plan on becoming Jewish anytime soon, I do find a lot of value in the stories they share with me about why their faith is important to them, their cultural traditions, the meaning it brings to their lives. I do think that is important. So my, my wife is Filipino, you know, being raised in the United States and kind of almost insulated from that. It's opened a whole new world to me, you know, that uh, I wouldn't have existed had I not allowed that to be a possibility with her family and with all these different Asian foods and all that stuff. Like you said, it's pretty cool because I think you open yourself up to all these experiences that you would have missed out on had you said, nope, I'm comfortable in my own little (laughs) world here and I'm not going to expose myself to other religions or other ethnic backgrounds. I think it's a shame. I think people are missing out by not opening themselves up to dialogue with people that don't necessarily agree with them or, or were raised different or what have you. I fully agree. I would like to circle back to something you said about how viewers of your channel or fans of your book have commented on what your dad did when you were a teen and how you think that they're mischaracterizing it by saying that he abandoned you. My views are informed by the stories my dad tells me about his own father and the shortcomings that affected my dad's childhood in the ways that this is me speaking here, I'm not speaking for my dad, in the ways that I think that my grandfather failed my dad as a father. And reading the story about what your dad did to you and the other kids, I would say, I would feel when I'm reading it, like he did abandon you. But I think that how you frame it to our audience, just what you said a little bit earlier, speaks to the lessons you learned about forgiveness, which you articulate later in the book. And I was hoping you could speak a little to that because I think that by your own admission in the book, you did struggle for many years about how to reconcile your own heart with what your father did. And the lesson that you offer on the power of forgiveness, even if you're just choosing to forgive them and they don't accept that forgiveness or never apologize, is a really powerful example. And I was hoping you could expand on that here. When I think of the word abandoned, I think of he left me on the street somewhere like a stray cat, you know, (laughs) I guess that's why I choke on the word abandoned. Because he did set up for me to go live with my brother, my two siblings that were a little bit older than me, he set them up an apartment. That's why I struggle with abandoned. You know, he did reject me and that was painful. And like you said, in my book, I, I used to say, 
I probably hated him for 20 years, but I, I think it was more like 30. <laughs> so as I go back and do the math, I'm like, when did I actually finally forgive him? And I, I just think the importance of forgiveness is so powerful. And I try to share that on my channel too. You know, Rafiki from The Lion King, where he hits Simba over the head and he says, what was that for? Doesn't matter. It's in the past. I, I love that line because I think it's powerful. It's important to learn from your past, but you can't live there. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of people in our society that are playing the victim card. And some people have been through way more than I have. And a lot of people have been through way less. And yet you can see it across the spectrum, people still wanting to play some sort of victim card to say, well, this is why I get a pass. Speaking from my own experience, I've had people, you know, trying to be kind to me. Oh, I feel sorry for you and that sort of thing. And it kind of feels good, but it really it kind of perpetuates it and it kind of allows it to continue on. I mean, I know they mean well by doing that and wanting to help. But for me, what really helped was when I heard that, and I shared this in the book too, is that saying of unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping it somehow hurts the other person. And that was eye-opening for me. Once I finally heard that, I was like, that's what I'm doing. I, my dad has kind of moved on I'm the one drinking the poison here, carrying around this unforgiveness. And I've shared too, since that time of finally forgiving him, there was freedom for me <laughs> on the other side of forgiveness that I, I didn't anticipate. I thought there was going to be freedom for him somehow, I guess, by me forgiving him. But really, it was freedom for me. There's another saying that says unforgiveness is like holding somebody captive and then realizing that you were actually the prisoner that was being set free, something like that. I butchered it. But both those sayings, I think, are powerful because I think forgiveness is such a freeing thing for the person that's actually holding something against somebody. Yes. It's a similar dynamic to something we spoke about just a second ago, which is in the same way that you choose to take offense at something. It's totally your choice whether or not you decide to forgive a person who's wronged you. It's so difficult, though. As you know full well, there have been people in my life who have done awful things to me. And I was stuck in this mindset. And I still struggle with it today. I've gotten better at it, but I don't think it ever truly becomes something that's easy to do. But I still struggle today to just let go or forgive a person who has wronged me because I so badly want them to acknowledge it. But the problem is, is that you can never force someone to do something. And hell, if you do force them to do it, if you hold a gun to their head and say, apologize to me, the apology is hollow. You can't force a change of their heart. But like you said, if you don't forgive them within your own heart, regardless of whether or not they'll ever apologize, you're just going to carry around that poison for the rest of your life. The longer you hold on to it, the more it hurts you and it doesn't hurt them at all. Right. I think well said. And I shared that in my book is I finally came to the realization that I need to forgive my dad because he may never, ever come back and actually ask for forgiveness. You know, maybe he kind of <laughs> stuffed that so far down that didn't feel like he did anything wrong. I, I don't know. But I share in the book when he finally did ask me for forgiveness, it was really anticlimactic. And I've had people share and uh, after reading my book that they were disappointed that there wasn't more fireworks or something that went off when he did actually ask for forgiveness. But by that time, you know, I'd already forgiven him long before, probably 15 years before that when I finally did. And it wasn't easy. I don't want to sit here and say, I oh, should just forgive him, move on. I get it. I And I share that in the story of coughing up hairballs. I think that's a good way of putting it because it, it doesn't come out easy. You have to hack at it and <laughs> hack at it and finally 
hopefully get it out of your system so that then you can take control of your life and be the best you that you can be instead of constantly carrying this thing around. And it's another thing to keep spinning. You're spinning plates in your own life. Oh, but that's right. I got to keep this unforgiveness spinning too, you know, and it's time consuming. It takes some of your energy away from you. So you can't fully give your full self to what you're working on now and what you're working on in the future. You were born a year after your family moved from Wichita, Kansas to New Orleans, and you have fond memories of that part of your childhood. You write, quote, in the early years of my life, I remember my dad taking us fishing and camping, and we used to play football almost every Sunday afternoon at the field at the nearby school. I was five or six then. On Sunday mornings, we'd go to mass, then head home and eat a quick lunch. We'd watch the game on TV during football season. I'm a Steelers fan today, but back then, I loved the Packers since my dad loved the Packers, end quote. And that last part, I love the Packers since my dad loved the Packers, points to something I think many people take for granted when it comes to parenting. Parenting isn't just what you say to a child. It's everything you do in their presence. I think our parents have such an influence on us largely because we want to be like them, because we idolize them. More than what they actively teach us, I think, we learn from simply watching them live be and do. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I've, I remember when my son, my son played baseball. I tried to steer him away from football. I played football all my life. I even played college football. I share that in the book, but I kind of tried to steer him away from football. He played baseball and there were some tough years with sports. Sports is tough with the politics and just everything with it and the time consuming and all that. And I, I remember during that time telling my son, Hey, you know, you don't have to do this. You know, please understand it's your choice. I don't want you to feel like you have to play this. If there's something else that's more interesting to you, because he was pretty good, you know, he's pretty good. But then the heat kept getting turned up. Oh, you got to go to this class, you know, it's fielding class, this batting class and all these different things. And I just said, you know, please don't feel like you, you have to do this to please me. And he was like, no, but I want to and stuff. And it came out later that he really just didn't want to disappoint me because I was his hero. That's what he said. And so even though I gave him that choice, he still was looking at me as it was something that he thought pleased me, even though I tried to <laughs> verbalize, we can step aside and do something else. You know, it's tough. <laughs> it's just it, the whole navigating all that is really difficult because there's just so much, uh, you know, and I see this with kids sports today with parents getting so involved and how they're, oh my goodness, what is it? Let the kids play. We're turning this into it being about the parents. Anyway, I'm getting off on another tangent, but all that to say that was interesting for me to realize, wow, I knew he looked up to me, but I guess I never really thought of him as looking at me as his hero. And that can happen even in situations where the adult and child aren't related. I used to volunteer with an organization called the Young Storytellers Foundation. I worked with them for about six years. And how it was set up was basically they would pair up 10 adult mentors from the film industry with 10 elementary school children. And over the course of a nine-week period, for one hour a week, right after their lunch, the mentors would guide the kids through writing their first five-page screenplays. And at the end of the eight-week period, during the ninth week, they would have the scripts performed by professional actors in their school auditorium. So the kids got to see their scripts, which they wrote completely on their own creatively, performed live in front of their peers and their teachers and their family members. And it's a really powerful experience because for these kids at these underfunded schools, when it came to the arts, these at-risk schools, this was often the first time that they'd ever gotten to do something totally 100% creative on their own that wasn't a school assignment. 
one of the things that was mentioned to all the mentors during our training before we got to participate in the organization was that be very careful when you're talking with the student you've been assigned to never offer them ideas when they're writing their script. You can ask exploratory questions like, what do you want the character to do next? Or where do you think this scene takes place? But never to suggest an idea because the mere suggestion of it could make them think, oh, is this what my mentor wants me to do? Does my mentor want my scene to take place in a forest? Does my mentor want this character to be a giraffe? And it can totally affect the entire trajectory of their story. And I actually witnessed that myself. I accidentally, a few years in, I was working with this adorable and brilliant young child and she'd kind of hit like a wall. She couldn't figure out where to take the story. And she was struggling with the setting of like, oh, where should this next scene take place? And I was like, well, you know, it can take place anywhere. Melissa can take place in another state. It can take place in another country. It can take place on the moon. And she stopped me. She was like, do you think it should take place on the moon? And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> what have I done? I've, I've betrayed a core tenet of this organization. But I witnessed it in real time because she was like looking up at me as if she wanted to impress me. She wanted to do right by me. You know, this child who I'd only spend a few hours with, but in that dynamic of mentor mentee at that age, at 11 years old, you just have such a powerful impact on how children make their choices. It's something I've kept in mind ever since. I remember when I was younger and having projects like that and being frustrated because I felt like, why aren't they giving me more information? But I recognize now what you're saying is it doesn't really matter. We're trying to encourage you to kind of come up with your own stuff. And I always struggled in those type of <laughs> things. I don't know. I mean, maybe it was because of my background or whatever. I was always feeling like I wanted to try to please somebody. And so it was like, I want to make sure I'm doing this correctly when it really didn't matter in those particular types of assignments. Yeah, absolutely. There are two moments in your life that especially stand out to me. And that's the initial move away from your mom's close-knit family in Kansas to New Orleans and later Washington State, and how her anxiety, depression, and eventually alcoholism might never have surfaced had the family stayed in Kansas. And the other moment that stood out to me was your older brother Rick's decision to have you move in to his 280-square-foot trailer with him and his new wife when you were around 13 or 14, and how different your life might have been had you been put into foster care instead, like your father said was a possibility. I can point to moments in my own life now and how they affected me positively or negatively and how profoundly different my life would be today if those events didn't happen. And it seems like the things that happen to us and the choices we make that seem innocuous at the time can have these far-reaching cascading consequences into the future. Is that something that informed your choices as a father when your kids were born? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think all of it. My brother Rick is awesome. He's been such a great, solid sounding board and we're best friends. And he's been good about, you know, even though he's nine years older than me, looking at me more as a peer rather than a fatherly figure. There's an art to that, <laughs> you know, even as a parent myself with my own kids is allowing them to suddenly shift. I'm still their dad, but now we're more kind of peers. He's been great. And so he's helped me kind of navigate. And then he helped me writing the book too of navigating because I don't want to paint my parents in this horrible light because they did start out well. And I think to your point about my mom, I think had my mom stayed there, I don't know. I think she got unplugged from her support group 
And I don't think she ever saw us staying up in Seattle. And I think it was a short move over to New Orleans. And then we moved up to Seattle in 66. And I think my mom always kind of envisioned us getting back to Kansas. And the Kansas people are amazing. You know, my mom was one of 12 and their kids are all, you know, my cousins are all back there. And I wonder what that would have been like with our life if, had we stayed in Wichita, Wellington area and grew up there amongst all that family, I think, because we go back now and they're so loving and they accept you and all that. We were unplugged from that, uh, you know, out in Seattle, we would go back occasionally back to Kansas and see all these people, but we didn't know them, you know, compared to actually living in and amongst them. And then as far as my brother taking me in, yeah, that was huge. And But I think it also knit us together, my moving in with him. Rick and I are super close to this day because of that. And I think because I went through what I went through, it allows me empathy towards people. And that's why I created the channel originally. You probably read that I thought I was going to help 30 or 40 people. And I was just trying to download some nuggets from my brain to help people navigate life if it might help just a handful of people. I didn't see this thing being what it is today. So I'm grateful for the platform that I've been given. But I think because of my childhood and because of what I went through, I have empathy for people that are struggling with that empty feeling of, you know, I learned how to tie a tie from my 19-year-old roommate at the time because I just didn't know how to tie a tie. And I think part of tying a tie, it's a reminder that, hey, isn't there somebody that should be showing me this? And so I think it brings up those emotions too, because I've had people say that they're watching me tie a tie and crying. You know, I thought in my naivete or my ignorance, I I thought I was just showing people how to tie a tie. I didn't know it was going to resonate on the level that it is resonating. Well, I think so much of how we show love, I mean, you speak about this actually in the book, the five love languages, right? So much of how we show love and care for one another again, isn't just in the things that we say, but it's the things that we do. You know, the act of showing someone how to tie a tie is in many ways more than just the technical act of showing them how to, you know, where do the loops go and when do I put the tie through this hole and all those other things, right? It's the act of I'm taking the time out of my day when I could be doing literally anything else. I could be watching paint dry if I wanted to, but instead I'm taking the time to give you knowledge that will help you in life. And that is an act of love, whether it comes from a parent or a stranger on YouTube. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I've talked about this too with my own kids. In the book, I talk about building the fence. And I did, from an early age, want to equip my kids. The funny thing is, it's similar with my channel. If I'm going to show how to make sweet and sour meatballs, me actually recording it, editing it, and publishing it, takes way longer than me just making sweet sour meatballs, you know? I mean, I could I could be in and out of the kitchen in a half an hour compared to, a, you know, five hours. And it's kind of similar with your own kids. If you really want to equip them to succeed, you kind of need to slow it down and allow them to fail. And I shared this in the chocolate chip cookie video. Hey, you know, it's special because you made it. You're making that effort to make these chocolate chip cookies. They don't have to be perfect. They can be odd shaped, whatever. But the fact that you made the effort to make them and I think that's powerful. I think that's powerful to encourage people to fail, kind of to your point about the storytelling. As long as you put forth an effort, I think that you should be proud of that. There's something powerful in recognizing that, hey, I've got my own little flair on it, you know, and that's what makes sometimes amazing storytellers or amazing artists or what have you is it's, and my daughter was like this. She would always kind of do things a little bit different, but then she'd always worry that the teacher wouldn't necessarily approve because it wasn't what other people were doing. She was kind of doing her own thing, but it was like, 
that's cool that you're doing your own thing. Those are the people that kind of stand out almost because they're not doing what everybody else is doing. I find so much more joy and reward in cooking for my girlfriend, you know, with my limited cooking skills than I do cooking for myself. I hope this doesn't sound creepy. I like watching her eat the food that I've made because I just like seeing whether it's joy or fulfillment or just the act of knowing that what is sustaining her right now in this meal, something that's filling her up and giving her nutrients for the day. Like I did that. There's something there when you're doing something for someone else that is its own reward. Even if that same act when done for yourself, maybe doesn't give you the same feeling. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I, I don't think that's creepy. I think that's pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it is kind of slowing things down and pondering. And I think we, we lack that a lot in our society. Circling back to the story you mentioned about the fence, which also ties into a role that your brother Rick has played throughout your life. You and your family had a dog, Gan, named Gan by your daughter, Christine. And when you moved from a smaller house that did have a fence to a larger house that didn't, you had to solve a problem. In the book, you write, quote, all went well with Gan until several years later when we moved into a slightly larger house. Gan was mostly a good dog, but she had one weakness. She loved to run as wild and free as possible. We called her an escape artist. If you opened the front door, Gan was gone, end quote. And you ended up calling up your brother, Rick, who worked as a cabinet maker, and he shared with you how to make a fence from scratch, the materials you need, what you need to do to make the fence. And then you made that fence with your two children. And like you said, what would probably have gotten done in a weekend had you done it yourself took several weekends to do because they were helping you and they were children. You've made dozens of videos about not just tying a tie or shaving, but intricate stuff like plumbing or gardening to baking, all sorts of things, dozens of videos for those things that you had to reach out and learn yourself through reading and watching things, or was that stuff that was imparted to you by friends and relatives? How did you acquire all the knowledge that you're sharing on your channel today? All of the above. I've tried to be a lifelong learner and I, I did actually have my nephew teach me how to paint oil on canvas so you could see me learning something because that's not something I've knew how to do. And I had to kind of learn how, how to do it so you can see. And it actually came out okay. But I try to encourage people to always be learning because I think that that's just a pretty fulfilled life. And I've had people say, oh, you made scrambled eggs. That's what moms do. Or, oh, you're changing a tire. That's what my boyfriend or my husband should do. Well, shouldn't you learn how to do just about anything? I don't want my daughter to rely on some nice guy stopping by the side of the road and changing her tire for her. What if she's alone and doesn't, you know, you should know how to do that stuff. And so, yeah, I've learned anything and everything. You know, I, I was a bachelor for a while and had to figure out how to cook because I didn't want to just only eat macaroni and cheese. I wanted to eat some better meals. And so, I learned that. And then I learned a lot of stuff by just going to classes. Like I learned how to tile. I went to, there was a tiling place that was close by and my wife and I both, we sat through a class, just understanding what it takes to tile a shower and to tile a bathroom. And a lot of things, it's kind of breaking it down into baby steps and taking your time and being smart as you go along, you know, don't get yourself in over your head where you're flooding your house, you got to make sure you're asking, you asked all the questions. And I think a big part of that is preparation. I'd go to the local hardware store and ask, you know, this is what's going on. How do you fix that? I remember that's how we learned about the flapper in your toilet. You know, the flapper in your toilet, it's a pretty common thing to go out. It doesn't stop all running toilets, but it does stop the majority of them. Toilets are made a little bit different. A lot of them these days, but anyway, an older toilet, the flapper is usually why your toilet's still running. So anyway, all that from 
just asking questions and not being embarrassed that you don't know how. One gal just reached out to me the other day, I think yesterday even, emailed me and said, hey, I'm a single mom. I don't have a whole lot of money. I have a leaky pipe underneath her or sink or whatever. And I don't normally write back to people. I just don't have the bandwidth. But I did. I felt compassion on her. I was like, I, got, I just got to let her know. You have your camera. <laughs> a lot of people forget you have your camera on your phone, which pretty much everybody has. All you need to do is just, okay, take a quick little short video of it and then go to your hardware store and say, this is what I got going on. Can you help? And then if that person can't help, ask somebody else, you know, somebody's got to be able to help you with that. And then I also talk about your camera again. If you're going to take something apart, set up your camera, record what you did so you can go, okay, that's where that piece goes. We've got this device in our hands that's pretty useful for helping you with a lot of how-tos. If you were to put two people in, let's say, Seattle, Washington, and you told the two of them, the first one of you that's able to travel around the world and get back here to this spot first will win $10 million. Now, if one of those two people had never heard of the airplane, for some reason in this fantastical story, did not know airplanes existed, they could try as hard as they possibly could. They could take every car, every train, every boat, but there's no way they would beat the other person who knew that planes existed, no matter how hard they worked, no matter how hard they tried. And when I was reading your book and you were sharing your story on your path to try to become a professional football player, and the mistakes that you made because no one had given you the advice on how to do it, I guess you could say the right way. And then eventually a friend of yours kind of pulled you aside and said, hey, man, you would have had a lot better luck had you gone to community college first, done two years there, shown yourself to be a great player on the field of that community college. And then you would have been drafted into a four-year college and gotten the field time that you never really got as a walk-on because you just went straight to a four-year college when you were in your 20s. And the lesson you learned from that. So I'd love for you to share how that informed your quest for knowledge and mentorship after that. I just heard this quote recently and I really liked it. It said, not everyone who's confident is competent. The opposite is true. Not everyone who's competent is confident. And I think there's been times in my life where people will make a statement that they come across like they're so confident <laughs> that they know that this is true. And I've made life choices based on that information rather than going, maybe I should check that out and see if there's other paths. Maybe they might tell you, this is how you become a doctor. And yet they don't really know, but for some reason they're confident in how they tell you. And so I've learned a lot of times the hard way that I probably should have looked a little bit further into this rather than just trusting this confident person who sounded competent. And maybe they didn't know anything about what they were saying. They just wanted to appear smart. And so I think that's a big thing I try to encourage people that, hey, what's the end? And then work backwards, right? Where do we want to get to? And then work backwards. And okay, well, if I want to become a doctor or want to become whatever, let's go talk to a couple doctors, <laughs> you know, people that have already been there, maybe not too much older than us. If they're too far, then it might be different now. But somebody that's been through that stuff recently, that's actually got to where you want to get to and then ask them questions <laughs> rather than ask somebody that appears to know everything about everything, because there's plenty of those out there. That echoes advice from Harvard psychologist and researcher Daniel Gilbert. He wrote this amazing book called Stumbling on Happiness. And it's a book that studies in depth why we often make choices that we think will make us happy, but oftentimes, more often than not, don't, and why that happens. 
it's a rich book full of studies that are retold in a Malcolm Gladwell-esque style manner where they're very easy to understand, but the studies themselves are very rich. And you get to the last chapter, spoiler alert for anyone listening, but the book did come out some time ago. The best way to make better choices that will lead to happiness is to talk with people who've done what you want to do. And don't make the error in thinking, well, I want to be a doctor. Let me talk to some doctors and see how their experience is. And if you talk to 10 doctors and they all kind of say the same thing about what being a doctor is like, the pros and cons, et cetera, don't make the error of thinking, well, I'm a unique snowflake. So even if these 10 doctors are saying that you know, their life is stressful often, that they're working long hours, that maybe they don't get to see their kids as much because XYZ, they work in a specialized field. Don't say, well, actually, I'll be happier than them because I'm different. Rather say, okay, there is signal in the noise here. And if all 10 of them are saying roughly the same thing about certain very important aspects of their career and their lives as a result of the career they chose, understand that your life will probably play out in many ways like theirs. And there's a lot of knowledge and understanding that, yes, we're all unique, but in many ways, if we look to the guidance of people who've done stuff that we aim to do, that learning from their stories is really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it on the head. And I think I've unfortunately learned the hard way. And then sometimes too, you get going so fast, like, that's right. I should have. (laughs) I should have checked this out a little bit further rather than just trusting this person that is telling me, because you'll run into plenty of those people that will say, you know, this is what you should do. Well, okay, let me look a little bit further into that and see if that is what I should do. Let's get to your channel and its stratospheric growth. You started the channel on April 2nd, 2020, shortly after the pandemic hit, in the same way that I started this podcast as a result of the pandemic and kind of having this goal of wanting to do a podcast for many years, but never quite getting around to it. And I think this is true for a lot of people. The pandemic and the lockdown that ensued made us have to kind of live with ourselves and therefore live with our thoughts and confront those things that we kept putting off that we always intended to do, but hadn't. And for me, that was this podcast. And for you, if I have this correctly, was your YouTube channel, because I know it had been on your mind for some time at that point. But then you finally launched it on April 2nd, 2020. And in less than two months, you had 1 million subscribers. And now about three years later, you have 4.5 million. Reading through the comments and emails you've received, what do you attribute that exponential growth to? So I actually started the channel April 1st, and then the first upload was April 2nd. Not that not trying to split hairs, but it is April 1st, so it's April Fool's Day. So it's a little bit ironic that I did that because I was still trying to figure out how to upload, you know, because I'd never uploaded really anything and how do I do this and what have you. So, yeah, it's it caught me off guard, but I still, you know, I'm getting my head around it more and more. And I, you know, I'm so grateful for the platform that I've been given because I, I didn't want it to only be about how to's, you know, not just showing you how to run around and fix things around your house. But I wanted to share my heart with people to try to, you know, encourage people. The social media and stuff on the internet, there's a lot of garbage. (laughs) There's so much garbage out there that I was hoping to have my own little influence on a small number of people to try to help them be encouraged to, if you were dealt a tough hand, let's try to break the cycle and try to do the right thing. And so I think because of that, I have an amazing group of followers. The comments are a little heartbreaking on some of them, but I... If you look at the likes versus dislikes on my videos, it's 
99% pretty much likes. And so I've tried to also make this kind community, you know, even though I'm a, a man of faith, I want to encourage anybody and everybody to come on in and learn something in a safe environment where you're not going to feel like you're going to be judged, but you're going to be loved. I feel like that's what God would want me to do is to try to show just a small piece of his love, share that with people. And when my channel went viral, it scared me. I didn't know what just happened to my life because I'm a bit of an introvert. I've shared that before. And so I was like, oh my goodness, what do I want my channel to be? I want people to feel loved. That's what I kind of came up with. And so I reached out to Switchfoot. Now, if you've heard of the band Switchfoot, they're a Christian, kind of Christian mainstream though, too. You get, you hear their songs on regular radio too, but. Oh yeah. I remember listening to I Dare You to Move when I was in high school. Yeah. Well, there you go. They got a lot of good songs and I've been to several of their concerts and I always felt like one thing I really liked about them when you go to their concert, you feel loved. You kind of walk away going, wow, I was kind of a part of that. They weren't these people up on stage performing, they kind of let you in. And then John Foreman will surf the crowd and he's right there by you out there singing. You know, it's kind of like you're a part of it. And I I really liked that. And so I reached out to them because I was just like, I want my channel to be kind of like that and just kind of on a whim. And then Drew Shirley actually wrote me back and we've become friends since then. And part of that is I was just trying to help me understand and give me some calmness of somebody that maybe has kind of been through some of the hype and some of that stuff. And so I'm grateful for certain people like that, that I've been able to connect with to help me stay on track. And I get offers all the time from different sponsors and I have to turn some of them down, even though it's money that I'm letting pass by, because I feel like that just doesn't fit with my channel. I, you know, I appreciate you wanting to sponsor me, but I just don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know? And so I've, I always try to keep that in mind that my channel is about helping kids. I try to talk to people like I'm talking to my own kids and this is the advice I'd give. And so then if somebody comes along and wants me to kind of sell something that doesn't necessarily fit, I have to say, I don't think that's on brand, so to speak. Cause I think if, you know, I'm not Kim Kardashian, I'm not, I'm not somebody that can just sell anything. Cause I, you know, it doesn't matter. I feel like I'm a dad giving dad advice. And if it's not something I would recommend to my own kids, I can't feel good about recommending it to my internet kids. Yeah. Well, it goes back to something you said earlier about the mission statement about how, if you pick a funnel and you funnel all the choices through that, it affects every choice that you make. And if you're looking at your audience, like children who you're helping in the same way, you know, back when Christine and Kyle were much younger, you wouldn't want to push some product on them that you didn't think was right for them. You wouldn't try and sell them something that you think would do them harm. So I imagine you take a similar approach when coming up with sponsors. Yeah, I do. So that's a hard thing because I did leave my job at the end of last year. And so the money would be nice, but I also, you know, got to keep my integrity intact to where it's like, I just can't in good conscience, feel like I can promote something just for the money. If it's something I believe in, then it makes sense because I promote all kinds of stuff for free, like Trader Joe's. I love Trader Joe's and I've never received a cent from Trader Joe's. I think they're a good quality store that sells reasonably priced products that you could live off of for, you know, as a bachelor or whatever, and you can make meals fairly inexpensively. In one interview, reflecting on when you reached 1 million subscribers in such a short period of time, you said, quote, it was terrifying at first. I didn't look at it as a great thing, end quote. And was that because you were at that point unsure of what the direction of and, and mission of your channel was, if I'm understanding that correctly? Or, or what was it in your head and on your heart that made you feel that terror? 
I felt a little bit exposed, I guess. It was kind of the terrifying thing. And now if you Google Internet's dad, it's me. You know, that's my face. And so having your face out there everywhere was a little scary because you can't, (laughs) you know, you can't undo it. I can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's there. And so I had to come to grips with what is my life now? And it's been good. I've had people approach me and introduce themselves to me and stuff. And, you know, I haven't had anybody be weird. So that's been good. I'd like to meet people. I think it's cool just understanding that do it in a respectful way. And I'd love for people to introduce themselves if they see me. Yeah, it's just hard to get my head around because I, like I said, I'm a bit of an introvert, pretty private person, kind of keep to myself. And so, uh oh, suddenly that may not be the case now. And it hasn't been as big a deal as I was concerned with when it first went viral, just because it was all new to me, you know, and we hadn't laid a foundation for it. There was no big plan of this is what we're going to do. And it was more, I just want to help a small group of people and give them a nugget. And I've shared this a lot of times too, you know, I'll watch YouTube to learn some things too, but a lot of times there's a lot of hoopla. There's a lot of subscribe, hey, do this and bells and whistles and all that. I still don't even say that to this day. I don't even ask for subscribers. I'm just trying to put out content that's useful to people and try to do it in a a way that doesn't waste your time. You know, you watch a 20 minute video and that nugget was at minute 14. I just get to the nugget. Tell me what I need to do. (laughs) I got videos now where I'm cooking and stuff that just naturally takes longer. And I've also had my subscribers say they enjoy just hanging out with me too. So understanding that and how that fits in, I'm I'm still trying to get my head around that, that it's okay to maybe make a longer video as long as you're just kind of, you know, I'm not trying to get you to do anything. We're just kind of hanging out together. I do think that is one of the things that sets your videos apart. One of several things, They are really all killer, no filler. It's straight to the point. You know, the how to tie a tie video is like a couple minutes long at most. And it's just, this is how you tie a tie. Make sure you match it with a color on your shirt and don't look dorky when you do it. It's straight to the point, which is great. The comments in your videos, and they are numerous. I mean, there are so many comments. They put me in a weird emotional place. On the one hand, I'm really heartened by the positivity and gratitude and goodwill, which is unfortunately rare in YouTube comment sections, as I'm sure you well know. But at the same time, if I'm being totally honest, I can often feel overwhelmed by the sheer amount of pain and loss that often undergirds that positivity. In the same sentence that someone is thanking you for your work, they're sharing that their father abandoned them as a child, or that their father died when they were young, or that their father was present but never involved. And that speaks to the dual significance of your channel, Rob. It, it simultaneously points to the positivity and joy that people can share with each other and to the magnitude of the fatherless crisis that is affecting children today. You know, in some ways, that's the blessing and curse of your channel's rapid rise. The fact that so many people need you also points to something really heartbreaking, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've shared that a lot. The flip side of my channel going viral was the need for it. And that is heartbreaking. Yep. So I, I do struggle too, especially early on, you know, trying to get my head around some of the comments of people and what's happened to them and, and that sort of stuff. And I do try to, if somebody says that their dad died, when I am in the comment section, I try not to spend too much time in there because I just don't have the bandwidth or the mental capacity to be able to deal with everybody's problems that they tend to share. But I do try to jump in and say, you know, I'm sorry, you lost your dad. Glad you're here to try to 
help them kind of deal with that loss. And I'm hoping my channel can live on long after I'm gone. You know, I'm not going to be here forever. So hopefully it'll help inspire people. And a big thing I want to, again, try to encourage people to, if your dad did that to you and you're a young man, that doesn't mean you have to do it. You can break the cycle and please do. When you get the opportunity to, let's kind of make a pact with each other that we're not going to make the same mistakes that maybe our parents made or, or what have you to try to do better for yourself. So then you can live your own life. Like I said, it all kind of ties together with the whole victimhood and the living in the past and forgiveness and all that. Yeah. It isn't just about learning how to tie a tie. It's much more than that. And hopefully, you know, with my limited platform, I can do my little small part that maybe might have ripple effects way beyond me. One of the things that stands out to me about your videos is that beyond the technical advice itself, the nuts and bolts of how to do a thing, you know, how to change a tire, how to plant a tree, how to bake chocolate chip cookies. There's fatherly advice sprinkled throughout in how to tie a tie. To call back to something I said just a second ago, you mentioned that it's important to pick a tie color that complements the color on your shirt. You know, in how to shave your face, you instruct viewers to make sure to clean up the sink after they're done to be considerate of the other members of the household. I do think that's part of why the channel connects with people as much as it does. You know, it's not just technical how-to advice. It's advice on how to live a life. As you said in an interview with the Washington Post, quote, there's so much more to being a dad or a mom than just fixing things. You have to share your heart with your kids, end quote. Can you speak a little bit about that sharing your heart? What does that mean to you? I think it's important as a parent to help your kids understand that you're doing the best you can. And I've also shared that I think there was a generation maybe before us that the parents, you just did it because that's what the parents did. <laughs> Those parents told you to do. And, you know, I think it's important to show vulnerability early on. It's one thing when they're five, you can kind of control the narrative <laughs> and they think you know everything about everything. And then pretty soon they got a little older and then their friends start telling them, well, you like your dad? Yeah, well, he's cool. Well, doesn't he do this or whatever? You know, they, you kind of get a little bit where they start realizing maybe you don't know as much as you pretended to know. And then pretty soon they really know that when they get in their teens. And I think getting ahead of that, helping them. And again, this is where my faith comes into it. I think through prayer, I was able to kind of share my heart with the fact that, you know, I'm praying to my heavenly father in front of my kids to help them see that I'm trying to do my best, you know, I'm going to fail. And it's, it was a great opportunity to be able to kind of admit my shortcomings in front of them without it being some dramatic thing. It was more natural, right? Because it was through us praying together. But I think that's important. And I think that mission statement would be powerful too, to be able to say, these are the things I committed to when you were younger and I'm doing my best, you know, I'm going to fail, just getting ahead of it that I'm not perfect. I'm doing the best I can. But hopefully you understand that I'm on your team. I'm trying to be the best dad that I can. I will make mistakes and hopefully you can forgive me. And when you make mistakes, I'll forgive you. I think that's part of what I mean by sharing your heart with them. So they understand where you're coming from in all this, right? I'm not a father yet, although I hope to be soon. <laughs> but it seems to me that one of the keys of being a good parent is, is not being perfect at everything because you never will be. But it's about, you know, showing up and putting in effort, you know, because like you said, and you've said this many times, you've made mistakes as a dad, you know, which is an admission I think every parent could make. I would be very wary of a parent who said, I never made a single mistake raising my children. <laughs> I would be 
extremely alarmed, to be frank. It seems to me that one of the main ingredients of being a good parent is not doing everything perfect because that's an impossibility, but it's about showing up for your child and putting in the effort regardless of whether you're perfectly doing it or not. I think that's absolutely the truth. You will make mistakes. I can promise you that. <laughs> you're not, you know, you're not, you never raised a kid before. Of course you're going to do that. And I think, you know, you hear always hear that about the first kid too. The first kid, you tend to be a little bit, you know, everything has to be perfect. And you see that in your first kid. By the second kid, you realize, ah, you know, they're going to walk eventually. <laughs> you know, your first kid's like, my kid's 11 months old, still not walking. And, you know, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it'll happen. So you don't have to worry about it so much. So it's funny though, because I I think how you kind of adjust and you hear about that, about grandparents, how they tend to spoil the kids and stuff, because they kind of been there, done that, you know, kind of, okay. And I think that would have been helpful in our lives, my wife and I, because we really didn't have the parental support at all. That would have been helpful to have a grandparent walking alongside and saying, don't worry so much about that. That's going to be okay. In a personal video to your audience, you said, quote, If we all each did our own little bit, the world would be such a better place, end quote. And this ethos of just doing a little bit each day to show your family you love them, to help your neighbors, to be kind to people, to be kind to yourself, is one that runs through your videos and your book. Because as you've said, you know, the internet is full of advice, full of people offering rules on how to live a good life. And part one of your book is full of all kinds of life advice, ranging from the philosophical to the practical, even theological. But so much of it comes back to that earlier quote, if we all each did our own little bit, the world would be such a better place. How has that advice manifested in your life and why do you hold so fast to it? It's easy to get overwhelmed and just think that, ah, there's nothing I can do. (laughs) You know, there's nothing I can do because there's just the problems are bigger than me. Well, you know, maybe if you took care of your little part and then encouraged other people to take care of their little part, there's a song by Switchfoot that says, is this the world you want? Well, you're making it every day you're alive. It's easy to lose track of that. I think by you making the choices you're making, you're kind of contributing to (laughs) everything else around you. So I think it's just, it's one of those simple truths, I think, that if we just each did our own little part and then encouraged other people to do their little part, boy, it's, and I think we long for that. I think we long for that community. You know, now you don't know your neighbors and that sort of stuff compared to when I was younger, people tended to not move around so much. So you tended to encourage each other and encourage that type of stuff. I do think we long for it. I compare things to fast food and I worry about social media with people, you know, wanting to swipe and, you know, it's lessening our attention span so that we're we can't stick with things for longer than 30 seconds, you know, but we long for it. I do believe that we long for that. We long for the community and we long for sitting down to a good meal and enjoying each other's company. And yet we don't make time for it. It's kind of sad because you're kind of doing it to yourself. And I all back to that point of you got to stop and go, wait a second, what am I doing here? I, you know, I'm eating fast food every day and wondering why I don't feel very good. Well, maybe you should slow it down and actually make yourself a dinner and enjoy it. That's very true. That idea of just slowing down for a second and asking yourself, why am I unhappy with my life? And what are the things in my life that are making me unhappy? And maybe I should examine those things and change them. Just the act of self-reflection. I feel like 
so many people, myself included, you know, I am guilty of this. I feel like life is moving so much faster now than it did in the 90s when I was a kid. And I think a lot of that has to do with the 24-hour news cycle and social media and the, you know, ever-shortening length of clips, you know, and pack as much information as you can into a minute, you know, on TikTok. Everything feels exhausting. And we don't give ourselves the time to kind of slow down, reflect on why we do the things that we do. So I, I think that's really well said, Rob. I've got a few more questions just to wrap us out. And I've really enjoyed our time together. And I appreciate you sharing your time with us. I've been seeing a woman I really love, and we've talked a lot about having kids after we get married. What's one piece of advice that might not be in your book that you'd give someone like me? You know, what should I be aware of or, or what should I know heading into fatherhood in a couple of years? Ah, uh, that's tough to try to narrow it down to one thing. I, one thing I've told my kids about marriage too, you know, since if you're thinking about marrying this gal, I think a big part is marry your best friend, you know, make sure it's somebody that you just love hanging out with and they're your buddy and you just enjoy their company. Because I think a lot of times when we're younger, we go so much after looks, you know, instead of, boy, is this a person you really, you're going to spend a long time with that person. So, you know, you want to make sure it's somebody that you, boy, you really just enjoy being around, you know, because looks fade and I don't have any hair left. And, you know, I'm an example of that perfect example of it. Um, and as far as kids, like I said, I think the whole mission statement is powerful. I think understanding, you know, what are we wanting to do? We're trying to raise good adults. That's the end game. Now, how do we get there? And I think working on that, I think a big thing, you know, a couple big pieces of advice was setting up boundaries for your kids and then also giving them the chance to make the mistakes and also lay out the consequences of those mistakes. You know, I'm giving you this privilege of going to do this and what you do with it will determine whether you get these similar privileges in the future. I, I think that was always a, a powerful thing because then you're basically putting the ball in their court that you choose to do this, you get these consequences. You choose to do that, you get these consequences. So you're making the choice. I'm just letting you know that this is how it's going to go for you. It could go well, or it could go, okay, yeah, we're taking those privileges away. And you knew that going in. So giving your child choices and helping them understand before they make that choice, the ramification of each choice. I think that's empowering because you still give them the opportunity to make the choice and you lay out what will happen if they make it. Then it's on them. Yeah. Then you don't have to feel bad about, okay, well, there was consequences and you, you knew that there might be punishment. Okay. Well, and then also letting that leash out a little bit more. Okay. And then you can refer back to that and say, okay, you made this responsible choice here. Therefore, I'm giving you even more responsibility. And then we'll see how you handle that. And you give more responsibility and more responsibility. Oh, you didn't handle that too well. I got to pull back a little bit, you know? And so all those things I think are powerful in making a good adult because those are life skills because they'll have that at their employer. They'll have that in everything that they do. It's empowering, which I think is important. Throughout your book and in many of your videos, you share dad jokes. I would be remiss if I didn't ask for you to share with us one of your favorite all-time dad jokes. This one was from my brother, and it's just so clever. I don't know where he heard it, but it's top five. My son said he didn't understand cloning. I told him that makes two of us. <laughs> that is good. That is very good. As a connoisseur of dad jokes myself, I will be shamelessly stealing that and sharing it with other people the moment we stop recording. Nice. You know, there was a question that I asked every guest for the first 45 episodes of the show. 
And that was a question regarding empathy. And since then, I've varied it a bit. I've asked different questions to each guest related to their topic of expertise or what they've done with their life. But I find myself more often these days kind of dusting this question off to ask to people when I feel it's appropriate. And you mentioned empathy earlier in our conversation, and I think your book and your videos are shot through with empathy. So I think I would regret if I didn't ask you this question. As individuals, we're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of every person or every group of people all the time. It's just not possible. There's not enough hours in the day. So is there someone, Rob, or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Yeah, I would say foster kids. That's the first thing that comes to my mind because I, like I share my backstory, and I've thought that was an idle threat. My brother Rick said, no, that wasn't an idle threat. Dad was going to, he was ready to put you in foster care. I didn't know much about foster care, but now because of my channel, I've learned there's a lot of things broken about our foster care. And so, I have a lot of empathy for people that are in the foster care system because people would say, you know, I was in the foster care and I aged out. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. You aged out? What does that mean? Can you clarify? And these kids a lot of times are maybe bouncing around to different foster care homes. And then when they get to be 18, they age out. And then we just say, good luck. I can't get my head around that, that we think we're setting people up for success by just saying, you're off the payroll, you're 18. I wish you well. <laughs> and so my heart goes out to those people. And I think I'm hoping if I get the opportunity, that's something that I can get involved with and shine a light on to come up with different ways that we can educate those people with real life skills. You know, I think a lot of times, unfortunately, our education system doesn't necessarily set us up with life skills, which is a shame. You know, we're learning all kinds of different things, but we're not really learning, you know, how to pay rent or how to do a job interview or how to do all these things that we need to do once we age out, so to speak. So I don't remember much of my geography or algebra lessons, but I wish I'd been taught financial responsibility in my high school years. That would have been much more beneficial and longer lasting than a lot of the stuff that I learned. As I've said throughout this conversation, Rob, I'm really grateful that you took time out of your day to spend with us when you could have been doing literally anything else. So thank you for that. Before we started recording, you had mentioned briefly that that title you've been given, The Internet's Dad, is not one that you would have given to yourself. And you're understandably, I think, probably a little self-conscious about it. But I think that the titles we are worthy of are not the ones we give ourselves, but the ones that are given to us by other people. And I think that's why, in my humble opinion, why you are worthy of that title, The Internet's Dad. Because although when you started the channel, as you've said yourself, you thought you'd get 30 or 40 subscribers, you know, just this little channel in the corner of the internet where just a few people would watch every week. And that would be fulfilling in and of itself. The act of doing it would be the fulfillment. But I think that the rapid rise of your channel, as we've said earlier, speaks to the need of your channel. I think you're doing such important work. Although I came from a family with a strong father who is my hero to this day, I am so grateful that there are men out there like you who are being the internet dad to so many children out there who don't have one in their life. So thank you again, Rob, for your channel. Thank you for your book. And thank you again for your time. 
Well, thank you, Michael. If I could just put in a plug for you, I have to tell you, this was a really good interview. I think you really did your homework, which really surprised me. Uh, You know, how you're able to pull up all these quotes from my book and then also quotes from other interviews. And so I appreciate you putting in the time before interviewing me. That means a lot to me. I've always struggled. You know, I get emails too about sponsorships or whatever, and it's, hello, well, could you at least put my name, you know, at least it would show me that you're really interested in me and you're not just sending this to everybody. And so good on you, Michael, that you put in the work, because I think that speaks to your character. And I think it's endearing the fact that you took the time to do your research before our interview. Of course, Rob, your time is valuable and I value it. So thank you. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. 